Because this episode features heavy involvement of Lyndon Baines Johnson, it is my duty to inform you that there is some foul language in this episode. Please be advised. We deserve leaders who stand for principle, who unite us all behind shared values, who cast aside anger for love. That is the standard we should expect from everybody. And to those listening, please don't stay home in November. This is Ted Cruz at the Republican National Convention in 2016. He's doing pretty well, right? This moment coming up right here, this is going to be a big choice. See, Ted is very popular within the Republican Party at this moment. In a primary season of surprises that saw Donald Trump, of all people, rocket to power within a party that he'd barely had any affiliation with, Cruz turned out to be the only candidate that could hang with him. Now, despite the fact that Cruz is not the cuddliest guy and didn't exactly have a ton of friends amongst the party elite, the final few primary states saw the powers that be doing everything they could to buoy Cruz as a final firewall against Trump. In response, Trump trains all of his firepower on Cruz, and things get personal. Nasty tweets about Ted's wife, Heidi, accusations that Ted's father, Raphael, might have been involved in the Kennedy assassination are among the two lowest of the lowlights. But on May 3rd, after a make-or-break primary vote in Indiana breaks the wrong way, Ted announces his campaign for president is ending, effectively handing the nomination to Trump. This moment here, this is two months later. Cruz has not endorsed Trump after he quit the race. So what's going to happen now? If he's going to endorse him, this, on the big grand stage where the party is supposed to close ranks around the nominee, is the moment. What do you got to say, Ted? Do you bury the hatchet and back the man that beat you, or do you stand up for your wife and your father and continue to stick it to this party interloper? If you love our country and love your children as much as I know that you do, stand and speak and vote your conscience, vote for candidates up and down the ticket who you trust to defend our freedom and to be faithful to the Constitution. Now, if it's me, this is the moment right here when I would probably start regretting my decision-making. The day after this event, he went in front of the Texas delegates and said the reason why he didn't endorse him was because Trump had indeed gotten personal. Ted was very much in his feelings, said that he was not going to be a servile puppy to somebody that had insulted his wife and father. Two months later, Ted endorsed Donald Trump. Look, 
Politics is a contact sport, and sometimes having a short memory is an asset. But after Cruz does endorse Trump, I, I, I got to wonder whether or not he thought back to those last four months, how things could have played out differently. Throughout that Republican primary, Ted Cruz exposed one major weakness for Donald Trump amongst Republican voters. Evangelicals were wary of him. So Trump needed an evangelical vice president. Now that we're years removed from all of the acrimony in that primary race, it almost seems more logical that Cruz could have dropped out, immediately endorsed Trump, and they would have run as a unity ticket. But obviously that's not what happened. Cruz was furious. Trump was indignant. And Mike Pence, the Indiana governor who endorsed Ted Cruz in that final make or break primary, is now the sitting vice president. If Ted had sucked it up and gotten on the train, he could have had that man's job. Instead, he was getting booed off the stage. Convention politics are big, loud, and consequential. If you miss your moment, it's gone forever. The 2016 versions were contentious, but not exactly surprising. The people that were the presumptive nominees before the arenas opened left with their titles. But that's not the case in 1960. Things are much more wide open, and anything can happen over the span of three days. In the 1960 Democratic Convention, kill shots are fired and prides are swallowed. There's only one big prize and all these men are about to go through the fight of their lives to bring it home. News dies and becomes history, but tonight, oh yeah, we raise the dead. Angeles. This primary season might have taken place throughout the Midwest and Eastern Seaboard, but we're going to find ourselves a nominee amongst the metropolis that sprung up in the orange groves of Southern California. As delegates from around the country begin to enjoy the pool life, we turn our attention to the business at hand. A competition unlike any other, and this edition promises to be as unique as any we've ever seen. First, we have the upstart who inexplicably has pole position in this fight, Massachusetts Senator John F. Kennedy. Not only does the young gun have the delegates, he also has a hell of an operation bankrolled by his father Joe and operated by brother Bobby. While this family act did humble Hubert Humphrey on the trail, that far from secures his position as a nominee. In fact, you could say that his defeat of one man over the span of several weeks is only a warm-up. For when he'll have to best two men with more experience and backing in only one week's time. 
One of those men is Adelaide Stevenson. The two-time nominee is reportedly interested in securing a third bite at the apple, this time against somebody not named Dwight Eisenhower, who dealt him his back-to-back presidential losses. Progressives wary of the ever-flexible Kennedy are very inclined to give Adelaide another shot, but time is a factor. Stevenson needs to announce his candidacy if he wants the job, something he has yet to do. That will not be a problem for Senate Majority Leader Lyndon Baines Johnson. He has officially announced his intention to run, posing the most serious announced threat to Kennedy and his operation. The Texas senator understands that this might be his last chance to run for the White House, as his strength lies in the South, and civil rights is only to increasingly drive a wedge between his power base and the rest of the country. And now, the rules. Candidates will have two days to corral and gladhand with delegates before the first ballot is taken. As of last count, Kennedy has a commanding lead of 600 delegates, leaving him 160 short of the 760 delegates he needs to win. However, should Kennedy not make it to 760 on the first ballot, those delegates now have the right to reconsider. A failure to win on the first ballot could fatally wound Kennedy's push for the nomination as delegates defect to John or Stevenson. That means it's up to the other candidates to sow as much doubt as possible into the minds of delegates about Kennedy before the first ballot is taken. This might take place in the City of Angels, but fans, you can understand that these competitors will need to stow their halos in the hotel safe for a few days. It's the 1960 convention. Let's get it on! With the action ready to begin, let's take a look at some of the folks that are spectating the event. There's Frank Sinatra, friend to the Kennedy campaign and sure to be a force amongst the delegate wrangling. Frank had been a formal campaign asset for the Kennedys since February of 1960. On a fundraising trip, glad-handing Western power brokers and donors, Jack and his brother Ted decided to make a base at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, where Sinatra was performing regularly. Frank loved seating the Massachusetts senator front and center so he could give him a big applause moment during the performance. But beyond the parties one of which introduced Kennedy to Judith Campbell, a woman that he would eventually share sexually with mob boss Sam Giancana. Sinatra was a magnet for Hollywood money, something becoming more and more reliable for Democratic causes. Stars would come see the show, stars would meet Kennedy, stars would give Kennedy money, same with other studio folks and Hollywood types. It was no different when Frank was on his other home turf of L.A. The night before the convention opens, Frank throws a massive Democratic Party fundraiser at the Beverly Hilton where him and Judy Garland perform. All the big players wind and dine, glasses clink, and backs are slapped. But as the sun rises the next morning, it would be all-out political warfare. And here's how the first round begins. Johnson couldn't wait. There was already tremendous momentum on the side of JFK, and that meant that LBJ had to go after him quickly. And as it turns out, 
JFK gave him the perfect opportunity. A few weeks before the convention, the U-2 spy plane had been shot down over the Soviet Union on the eve of a peace summit between the United States and the USSR. Soviet leader Khrushchev was livid, canceled the summit, and denounced President Eisenhower to his face and demanded an apology. With a real-world road test on how he would handle an international crisis, Kennedy flubbed. He suggested it might have been possible for Eisenhower to apologize. This leads to a dogpile. Nixon calls the Kennedy remarks naive, and LBJ says he certainly was not ready to apologize to Khrushchev. It's with that in the background that LBJ tries to first round KO Kennedy by challenging the Massachusetts senator to a debate at the Biltmore Hotel in front of a combined audience of Massachusetts and Texas delegates. In reality, it kind of looks and feels more like a rally. Each candidate took turns behind a podium and largely addressed the crowd instead of each other. Kennedy sticks to a conciliatory tone, and Johnson does his best to highlight Kennedy's recent Khrushchev flub. All of us in this room know, and the senator and I have had it emphasized upon us in the last few weeks, that we're only minutes away from Mr. Khrushchev's missiles. Just as Mr. Khrushchev knows, and I never want him to forget, that he's only missiles away, minutes away, from our missile deterrent. If Senator Johnson is nominated, I will stump all over Massachusetts with him to make sure that Massachusetts supports him in November. And I am confident that if I am nominated in this convention, Senator Johnson will take me by the hand through the length and breadth of Texas for the same purpose. Thank you very much. I think it's pretty clear when you listen to those two clips that there's one candidate that's been out on the campaign trail for the last few months reading a room knowing what they want to hear, delivering it in a pitch-perfect tone, and then there's Lyndon Baines Johnson. According to all reports, the people in the room would agree with us. Most people think that Kennedy did a better job than Johnson, which is very bad for Johnson. This is not a game of inches for LBJ. He needs to do real damage in front of delegates that are persuadable, and he does not have a lot of time to do it. That was his best shot, and it failed. If that wasn't a game changer, then Johnson almost certainly wouldn't have any traction on the first ballot, and he would need somebody else, namely Adelaide Stevenson, to really start making noise. Johnson's hope at this point is that after the first ballot, there's such chaos that he can reintroduce himself as a compromise. In the meantime, though, by all available scorecards, that is round one for the Kennedys. Adelaide Stevenson didn't know if he's going to run. And so... Both JFK and LBJ sought the double whammy. The endorsement of Adelaide Stevenson 
before the convention. This takes Stevenson out of contention and gives you the boost with the Stevenson faithful. LBJ went first in April of 1960. In an effort to gain Stevenson's support, Johnson, which was his favorite thing, hammed it up. Over their lunch, he calls Kennedy the boy, vows to teach that little prick a thing or two, end quote. Stevenson actually agrees with the assessment that Kennedy's a lightweight, but begs off giving LBJ the official endorsement. Stevenson believes that he has to remain neutral as the de facto head of the party, just in case there's a total deadlock at the convention and a super break glass in case of emergency white horse compromise candidate is needed. So Johnson and Stevenson part ways, agreeing that they will support each other if the other one stalls. So then it's Kennedy's turn to woo Stevenson. This time, with the help of historian and liberal power broker, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. Schlesinger founded the Americans for Democratic Action Committee with Eleanor Roosevelt and Hubert Humphrey. He'd been an advisor for Harry Truman and speechwriter for Stevenson during both of his runs. In May of 1960, Schlesinger wanted a meeting between Kennedy and Stevenson to grease the wheels of a union between the two. So he writes to Stevenson. To assure Kennedy's victory in Los Angeles, he would like to think that he had earned the support of the liberals and particularly of you. Kennedy warned Stevenson that Johnson might be sweet-talking him to his face, but privately had been telling anyone who would listen that Adelaide Stevenson is a light in the loafer's smarty pants and is, quote, the kind of man who squats when he pees. And if right now you're thinking, man, if all Kennedy got out of that meeting is a bunch of petty gossip, this meeting must have been a disaster. You would be right. This one goes south in a hurry. Not only did Stevenson feed Kennedy the same line about not being able to endorse anybody, he also lets it slip that he and Johnson are going to support each other if the other one stalls effectively telling Kennedy that not only can you not have my endorsement, but I am actively working with your biggest opponent to make sure you don't get the nomination. JFK doesn't take this very well. He explodes. Quote, we are sorry. We are going to have to shit all over you. End quote. Stevenson later told a friend, quote, I would have told the son of a bitch off, but frankly, I was shocked and confused by that Irish gutter talk, end quote. And so Stevenson heads to the convention without backing anyone, which is probably for the best, since there's still the possibility that he could be a more active participant in the process himself. Stevenson, again, is still very popular amongst progressives and has the support of many key legacy players in Washington. Would it be so crazy to think that he could secure another nomination? 
If anyone did, they didn't on Tuesday when Stevenson makes his way to the convention with a riot in front of him. Gigantic, loud procession of Stevenson supporters herald the arrival of the man they want to be a three-time nominee. He arrives to thunderous applause from the balcony of the venue, with delegates on the floor beginning to feel the buzz. And then there's the icing on the cake. Sitting front and center amongst the Stevenson delegation is Eleanor Roosevelt. This would represent her last shot to derail John F. Kennedy. Everybody seemed to be on board except for one guy. Stevenson. He had the legacy. He had the support. He had a moment. All he had to do was pull the trigger. And so, with the eyes of the party on him, Stevenson climbs the stage and stares into destiny. His supporters, waiting to spring into action, to start wrangling delegates, peeling off Kennedy's support, the second he declares that he will officially seek the prize. All he has to do is say the words. And instead... He tells a joke? After getting in and out of the Biltmore Hotel in this hall, I've decided that I know who you're going to nominate. It will be the last survivor. That's it. No announcement. No challenge to Kennedy. No 11th hour endorsement for Johnson, despite the fact that they were supposed to be supporting each other. As a Stevenson friend said, quote, he could have swept that convention. I could have murdered him. End quote. I know that there was one hotel room that was pretty pumped to watch that speech. The Kennedys. Because they just got round two. With one of their opponents stumbling and the other refusing to play... The only thing standing between the Kennedy machine and this nomination was collecting those final 160 delegates. Here's how their machine worked. Bobby held a meeting with 32 state coordinators every morning during the convention. They would list out the number of delegates they had and how many they needed. The coordinators would then head to the respective group of delegates and phone back once an hour with a count update. If there was a change, they'd call immediately so Bobby could figure out a way to get their sheep back in the herd. If a delegate was thinking seriously about not voting for Kennedy, Bobby would come down personally, flanked by six or so campaign staffers. The staffers would make a circle around Bobby in the wayward delegate so Kennedy could reprimand, flatter, or make promises without prying ears of the press hearing anything. On Wednesday morning, Bobby told the meeting he believed that they had the nomination won on the first ballot. But everything had to go right 
any delegate even beginning to hesitate needed to be reported immediately. What would they hesitate over, though? All the delegates knew pretty much what they had to vote on. The menu was pretty clear. You know, unless there was nasty little rumors floating around. You know, like one that started bubbling up a few days before the convention when a friend of LBJ, India Edwards, made a potentially devastating claim. John F. Kennedy had Addison's disease. It's a disorder where the adrenal gland doesn't produce enough hormones, and back then, a likely death sentence. Even worse for the Kennedys, it was true. JFK managed the disease effectively since the late 40s, first with cortisone shots and then with a cortisone derivative. One of the side effects of that treatment is increased sex drive. So, for all the JFK philandering that we have heard of, go ahead and file that one how you will. Now, the disease had not prevented JFK from slogging through a grueling primary campaign, but there was little medical question that it would eventually take years off his life. In a dogfight like this, specifically as they are hours away from a vote that will change their lives, there is no doubt that this cannot stand. They can't just rely on the sympathy of voters. So the Kennedys pushed back. Hard. Jack told reporters plainly that he did not have the disease, and he never had it. His brothers Bobby and Ted said the same thing. Two Kennedy physicians then held a press conference to refute the claim. Ultimately, the press saw little interest in the story and moved on. But as we are at this moment of truth, understand what a massive near miss that was for the entire family. And so, the nominating speeches begin. At this point, by Bobby's count, the Kennedys have 740 confirmed delegates. That's 20 short of the nomination. But it's close enough that when the momentum actually starts happening, you can count on some undecideds flipping because they want to be the delegates that flip the flipping point, if you catch my drift. It's all going according to plan until Minnesota Senator Eugene McCarthy takes the stage. And he gives, quite possibly, the best speech of the convention supporting Adlai Stevenson. I submit to you a man who is not the favorite son of any one state. I submit to you the man who is the favorite son of 50 states. And not only of 50 states, but the favorite son of every country in the world in which he is known. Of the favorite son in every country in which he is unknown, but in which some spark, even though unexpressed by way of desire for liberty and freedom, still lives. This favorite son I submit to you 
Adley Stevenson of Illinois. The crowd cheered for 30 minutes. Now, Stevenson was not actively seeking the nomination. But the reason that McCarthy used the term favorite son is because that was something that happened back then, specifically on the first ballot. Favorite sons were candidates that didn't really have a chance, but you would give them votes because it was basically an attaboy. You got your name read at the big convention. It was a good resume builder for a future career. What McCarthy wanted voters to do was vote for Stevenson on the first ballot to show their appreciation. The numbers that Bobby Kennedy had been obsessing over showed a razor-thin margin of error. It only took 20 people not deciding to join the Kennedy wave because they wanted to honor Stevenson to totally put all of this effort up in smoke. All of the innovation on the campaign trail for not. All of the sacrifice made by the family for not. All of the connections in Los Angeles and Las Vegas for not. Joe Kennedy's plan done. If enough people wanted to honor a man who wasn't running. And so, the vote began. And when Wyoming's 15 delegates put the total to 765, JFK had officially secured the nomination on the first ballot. That family had done it. They'd run the primary gauntlet. They'd battled the old guard and they defeated all the crafty veterans looking to swipe victory out of the convention. When the opposition tried to process what happened, Eleanor Roosevelt quietly slipped to the airport, reportedly spitting angry and in tears. This is victory. Imagine the metaphorical referee running in with his arms waving over his head. All of the press starts running into the ring because they need to talk to the new champion of the Democratic Party. And his name is Kennedy. And so began the second phase. Now that the Kennedys humbled their opponents, which among them would be chosen as a vice presidential nominee? This had been an ongoing conversation since the primaries. Even LBJ had joked during the convention that one of the people running had already committed themselves to 11 vice presidents. And LBJ was the first pick. 
the electoral map the Kennedys were working with depended on Texas. And although Johnson had never formally ruled out taking the Veep role, word had come back to the Kennedy camp that he was unlikely to take the position if offered. And so, convinced that Johnson was a no-go, Kennedy offered the role to Stuart Symington, another candidate for president. After consulting with his family, Symington decided to join the ticket. But when he called to accept the offer the next morning, the facts on the ground had changed for the Kennedys because Johnson was now interested. You know, it's funny. In almost every book that I've read on this subject, no two have the exact same story about how Johnson joined the ticket. In some, Johnson initially tells Kennedy no and then comes around. One book has the entire convention being a meta-level game being played by Johnson and legendary Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn, who maneuvered JFK expertly so he would be selected and accepted. What is universally agreed upon is that once the word got out that Johnson was selected, there was tremendous pushback, specifically from the liberal and union wings of the party. It was enough to give the Kennedys second thoughts. And so, we find ourselves in Johnson's suite. Bobby Kennedy is desperately trying to speak to the Speaker of the House. Specifically, he's there to tell LBJ that the union reaction is simply too negative. Johnson's going to have to return to the Senate or take another role in the party. How does national chair of the Democratic Party sound? Johnson's staff is desperately trying to play interference and keep Bobby away from LBJ. They believe that there was a gulf between what Bobby thought as a total apocalypse with the union members and what JFK thought, who was more of a pragmatist and understood that the Fuhrer would eventually die down. So if they could just keep Bobby from delivering the news, maybe things would seem more peaceful as time went on. And then there was this. Bobby hated LBJ. He didn't like his attitude. He didn't like his face. He didn't like the fact that it was LBJ's friend that was out there talking about the Addison's disease not a few days ago. So LBJ's staff believed that there was a not impossible likelihood that Bobby was just executing maximum pettiness at the 11th hour. It's amongst this very weird scene in the suite that Washington Post publisher Phil Graham notices what's going on in the Johnson suite. He sees Bobby trying to take back the VP offer. Now, Graham had just come from the Kennedy suite, where he was under the impression that the Johnson selection was a done deal. Graham called JFK to let him know his brother was trying to break up the impending union. Within moments... Kennedy calls Johnson, tells him not to worry about Brother Bobby. The press had already been alerted. 1960 is a Kennedy-Johnson 
ticket. Graham pushes Johnson into the hallway outside the suite to meet the press. Once done with that, supporters and staff trickled out as well. And as soon as Bobby was gone, Johnson seethed about the campaign manager that he had just signed on for, about the brother of his running mate, about Bobby Kennedy. LBJ said, quote, that fucking little piece of shit, that squirt-ass cunt, end quote. today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 1960s, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. This is JFK's acceptance speech, delivered at the Los Angeles Coliseum in front of 80,000 in person and 35 million on television. It's big on government programs and tough on commies, far from Jack's best work. In fact, it left some more conservative Democrats very cold. One of them was a California Dem, star of film and television, Ronald Reagan. Reagan reviewed the speech in a letter to fellow Californian Richard Nixon saying... Quote, underneath the tussled boyish haircut is still old Karl Marx, first launched a century ago. There's nothing new in the idea of the government being big brother to us all. End quote. It'd still be two years until Reagan switched parties. Seven years before he won the governorship of California and 20 years before he'd run for the presidency himself and win. Along the way, he's aided by this moment in his debate against President Jimmy Carter. Health insurance, important to the American people. Governor Reagan, again, typically is against such a proposal. Governor, (laughs) there you go again. When I opposed Medicare... There was another piece of legislation. That, of course, was from a debate in 1980, 20 years after 1960. Yet it was only the third election to feature a televised presidential general election debate. The practice had only been revived in 1976 when Carter participated in the second one against Gerald Ford. But of course, the first and most notorious is the reason why it took a decade plus off. Kennedy versus Nixon. 
the Dead is research written, recorded, and performed by me, Justin Robert Young. You can find a full list of our sources for this series at our website, raisethedeadpodcast.com. It's also where you can find our audiobook compilation and ebook of transcripts, both of which include a bonus episode. I'd like to thank my senior strategist, Tamar Sandell, along with Tom Merritt, Brett Rounceville, and John Teasdale for their extraordinary patience in putting this together. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com, and you can reach me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. I would like to thank merchants for their fantastic research facilities right here in Oakland, California. And now, a few things that I did not have a chance to get to. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the star power here. Sammy Davis Jr. has a really ugly incident at this convention. We're going to talk a lot more about his engagement to white actress Mae Britt and how the Kennedy campaign responded to it in an upcoming episode. However, I really just want to highlight this just to show you where the the fault lines were ideologically in the Democratic Party in 1960. Sammy Davis Jr. gets up to sing the national anthem and gets booed. This is 100% because he was going to marry a white woman. The New York Times headline covering this is Delegates Boo Negro. Here's some more Rat Pack-related controversy and headaches for the Kennedy campaign. Frank Sinatra hired the screenwriter Albert Maltz to write a movie called The Execution of Private Slovic. Here's the problem. Maltz was on the list of the Hollywood 10 of screenwriters and actors and directors that were suspected of connections to the Communist Party. This becomes a major issue, and a lot of people are putting pressure on the Kennedys to distance themselves from Sinatra or to make Sinatra fire malts. One of those people is diehard Republican John Wayne, who says the following, quote, I wonder what Sinatra's crony Democratic Senator John F. Kennedy has to say about that. Eventually, Sinatra bows to the pressure, but pays Maltz in full. Remember that as we get into our next episode. We briefly mentioned Philip Graham of the Washington Post in this episode. It certainly bears mentioning that Kennedy and Graham are friends good friends. And when you talk about Kennedy having a cozy relationship with the media, it's hard to think of a more colorful mascot than the buddy-buddy party boy relationship that Phil Graham had with John Kennedy. This is actually referred to in the Steven Spielberg film, The Post. Graham's story is a really sad one. Uh, He has an undiagnosed bipolar disorder and is a real loose cannon. He flies in 1963 to a newspaper convention where he makes all these kind of crazy statements. And this will give you a window into the relationship 
that Graham had with Kennedy, he just casually mentions that the president of the United States has been sleeping with uh, Mary Pinchot Meyer, who's a painter who lived in D.C. Uh, he gets sedated, uh, straight-jacketed, and brought back to D.C., threatens to divorce his wife, uh, Catherine Graham, the, the publisher of the, the Post, and uh, then winds up committing suicide not long after that. Like I said, sad story, but there you go. Although one thing that I found while researching, one of my childhood favorite television stations, the ABC affiliate out of Miami, Florida, which I loved because no other channel had TGIF. What an amazing block of television. Uh, those call letters for that station are WPLG. That is, to this day, what their call letters are. It was changed in 1970 to honor the life of Philip Leslie Graham. Previously, the letters had been WLBW, but uh, it, it, it changed to uh, PLG to honor Graham. Didn't know that. There's one for the South Florida kids. Big shout out to Dwight Lauderdale. Next time. Oh yeah, it's the big time. The general election, the misfortunes of Richard Nixon, the ruthlessness of the Kennedys, and the most important and misunderstood debate in American history on the next Raise the Dead. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>